harmony and peace and the sun will once again rise up in the east. Welcome to Ink Pulp Audio. I'm your host, Sean Crystal. Welcome back. If you're a tried and true listener, and welcome to the podcast if you're new. I hope you enjoy these and I hope you're continuing to enjoy them. Today, I've got part one of my two-part interview with Jason Latour. And Jason, I've known for a very long time. I've known him longer than most anyone in comics. Uh, Like him and Chris Brunner and Pat Quinn. They're part of the original crew. And Andrew Robinson. I've known these guys for a very long time. So uh, Jason and I have have a a long history. And and the intro for part two, I'll get into that more. Because the second episode really deals with with some friendship stuff. And this episode um, is more shooting the shit type of episode. Uh, Catching up, getting to the bottom of of some creative stuff. All that jazz. So, uh, yeah, enjoy this one today. It's good. You know, I I realized I I was listening to uh, one one of the Wandos where I said, enough talk. And, And I was quoting... Manhattan from Woody Allen. But because I'm a moron, I said Manhattan from Woody Hall. <laughs> that's that's uh, my mind being so twisted up with so much shit pouring through it. I wove Woody Allen and his Annie Hall movie together. So Woody Hall is my favorite goddamn director. Um... Yeah, uh, I just got. Uh, it's. I'm in the studio again on a Saturday. I just had a delicious bagel. I love that. I I wound up in a, in Atlanta, Georgia, and more specifically, an area called Alpharetta on the border of Cumming, Georgia. And within a couple miles of my house, I have some of the best bagels I've ever had. And these will. Uh, yeah, shut up. Shut the fuck up. You don't know what you're talking about. I've had New Yorkers come down and have these bagels, and they say they're fucking good, and they're goddamn good. And the people that own it are from New York. And I love that I walk in. I'm in Atlanta, or Alpharetta, and I walk in, but I'm in New York. The owners have gotten to know me. They're New Yorkers, and it's loud and and, and aggressive in there in all the good ways that a New York bagel shop should be. And uh, we have a good conversation. We catch up. And it doesn't feel like I'm in Atlanta. I love that. And also within, and, and fucking delicious. And I also have some of the best Italian food I've ever had within two miles of my house. And it's real, like, again, you walk in and you're not in coming Georgia. No, no, no. You've stepped into fucking Chicago or New York into a real Italian restaurant. It's that good. But I just find it interesting. And pizza, too. We've got great fucking pizza near our house. These are, like, growing up, I always, not even growing up, I always judged a place by, can you get a good bagel? Can you get a decent slice? And what's the Italian food like? That, to me, is a sign of a, of a place I want to live. I guess that's what I grew up on, on that sort of stuff. So I've got that, and, and, and I'm lucky. And it's pretty cool to have all this so close to my house and and we're not in New York and it doesn't cost the amount New York costs. I, I mean, I, I love New York, but you know what I'm fucking saying. So chill the fuck out. Back off. All right. Uh, do I have anything to talk about other than that? I'll save it for next time where I'm going to have one of my <laughs> lengthy intros. I'm just forewarning you. So you know going in. Maybe that'll help. All right, so let's get into it. This is me and Jason having a talk. I'll start there. (laughs) It's the hardest part, I think. The hardest part is just press it and record. Yeah, there's always a, a... bit of hesitation in me 
when, to hit that record button, it, it's like nerves or whatever. Right. Even when I'm doing my own little intro, right. is that not? Steady? I always, yeah, I always um, freeze up whenever I'm like on a panel or something, and people say like, oh, just "Say your name." Oh, oh, it, a panel like so, at a con. well, anytime, anytime anybody's like my whole life. Anytime anybody's been like, "Now say your name," like it just sounds like a so if someone's alien like, language, right. <laughs> someone's like, "Jason, why did you do that with yeah. Wolverine?" You're like, "Jason Latour." <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's it without fail every time though. <laughs> so does it work? I don't know. I mean, like I just always feel like I'm like it's a like I'm talking about a different person. You know what I mean? Do you what, like? Do you find that once you start talking, like all that anxiety just fizzles away? Most of the time, but like lately, it's been different because, like, um, I mean, clearly, I'm a talker uh, yeah. in real life. But I found like um, now that I'm doing more panels and more like real kind of press. Uh, there's definitely like you don't there's definitely like I've always like prided myself on the fact that like I can just that it's natural like I, I yeah. don't want to approach it like it's like uh, premeditated. Right. Exactly. But then you get into like one or two like panels or situations where you just bomb hard, <laughs> you know, and it's not yeah, and it's not like being in real media where like in real media, like if you're doing like if you're doing a movie or something, you would have a press circuit, a right. press junket like you would just end up answering so many fucking questions that there would be a point where like you've either got it down or if you flub one, who cares? Right. Right. But like in comics, like it's so small, it's such a small concentrated there's, thing. There's absolutely no pre-planning. Right. Well, there's <laughs> no room for error. Like if you do like one bad interview, like suddenly everybody like hops on it or if you yeah, flub something in a panel, especially like I flubbed something in like an X-Men panel the other day. What'd you do? It was nothing major, but it was like, I was basically talking about Quentin Quire and Cyclops and I flubbed that and somebody called it on the internet and like called me out on it. And I was like, Oh yeah, they're right. Like, that's yeah. not, well, there's, but I knew there's that. sticklers for that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I knew, I, I knew that as soon as I said it, I knew I like made a mistake and it's a silly thing to hold somebody's feet to the fire. Yeah, over, but yeah, at the same yeah. time, it's like people a, are passionate about what they're reading. So that's true. You know. Anyway. All right. Well, uh, let's let's. I guess let's give a little history. We can do that. We're in, yeah, that's good. We're in Charlotte here for Free Comic Day, and this is your hometown. Yeah. You born here? <clears throat> I was actually born like um, less than two miles from here. Like we could walk to where I was born. It's pretty weird. <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, I went back recently to uh, Maryland. Steph and I took the kids back and uh, we drove through my, like where I grew up and mm-hmm. it seemed so foreign and distant. Yeah. Um, I never thought that I would be the kind of dude that would, once I left, I never thought I'd be back. I mean, oh, I, never, right. yeah, I, never pla- I never planned on... I never planned on like never returning, but I never planned on like living here again. And like now I've been back for like almost five years. Um, and that's, it's a little strange. Right. You were in New York for a while there. Yeah. But I've bounced all over before that. Oh, right. Right. I remember that. This, this place is like the mafia. Like I can't get out. Like every <laughs> keeps time. Pulling yeah, back. Keep pulling back <laughs> I mean, it's just some of it is like it's a, it's familiar and you have all the amenities of like living in a big city or whatever, but like doing what I do, like I don't need the distractions of like New York city was amazing. I love that place with with all my heart, but like it was just too, too much like at that point in my career. Well, I think one thing you've got here that's interesting is this is the hometown of heroes con and you grew up going to heroes con yeah, and I'd imagine that as someone wanting to do this, that was an invaluable resource in your development. <clears throat> um, yeah, I feel like a broken record because I talk about it so much. But um, I started going to that show. I think the show's thirty-one years old. Uh-huh. I think I went to either the first or, or I think I went to like the second or third one. For and I've maybe only missed like four of them, three or four of them. Um, like I remember back when Shelton used to hold it, like in a little hotel. Oh wow! Yeah. Um, I don't even know why we went the first time. I mean, I started reading comics pretty pretty young, so I'm sure that 
I probably pestered my dad into like taking me. Um, but you, so, but you got to meet a lot of pros, learn about the industry pretty early. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes and no. Like, it's a weird situation where um, I think I learned more about making comics than I did about comics industry. Uh huh. Yeah, I'd imagine as a kid. Um, you know, like as a kid, it, I was I knew pretty early on that I wanted to like draw comics. Like I knew I wanted to either like go into cartoons or comics. Was it a specific book that got you thinking along those lines or you were just into comics? Well, the big thing was uh, the first comics I ever had was my dad had like a box of stuff, like a, a box of, I remember you know, this. like in the 70s, everybody had comics, like right. pretty much every male child at least had a box of uh, of something. Right. You know, 10, 20 books, and my dad just happened to hang on to his. Half the box horrified me because it was like DC horror comics. Oh, like scary. Yeah. Like, I mean, I would, but there were two issues of the Hulk that had Machine Man in it and uh, Machine Man number one, the Jack Kirby one. Uh Uh-huh. And I was, one, I was hypnotized by those because I loved the Hulk TV show when I was a little kid. Oh, the Lou Ferrigno show? Yeah. My parents <laughs> said that when I was a kid, I used to... Uh, <laughs> my parents said when I was a kid, I would watch the show while he was David Banner or whatever. And the second that his eyes would go green, I would run into the other room. <laughs> and then scary, Yeah, man. and then I would run back in, like when he was the Hulk. Right. And I would, like, it was you know, the change that yeah, got you? <laughs> I, and for a long time when I was a kid, like transform, transformative stuff like always freaked me out. Like I couldn't watch... Uh, the thriller video when yeah, I was a little kid. Yeah, that was kid. scary as hell, Yeah, I man. couldn't watch um, Werewolf in London, which is basically the yeah, same thing. That's the best transformation. Yeah, well, it's basically the same one. Like, I went, it's oh, the it's same the, people. Yeah, oh, right, 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 right. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it's it even gets Teen more Wolf. screen time. <laughs> Teen Wolf? Yeah, I don't Teen remember Wolf. the transformation. Yeah, when he takes, I want a keg of beer. <laughs> 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 yeah, that whole... Thing and I, I don't know, you know, maybe that's why I always liked X-Men comics too. There's some kind of weird uh, idea of like, you know, there's some oh, kind of mutant gene, change. Right, right, right. Um, but yeah, it freaked me out when I was a kid, but I was also like drawn to it. So to go full circle on that story, like did, did, I already knew the Hulk. Right. And um, my dad had this box of comics that I was kind of terrified of. It was like half war, half horror. But in the midst of all that stuff there were these three you know little superhero comics and one was the hulk uh-huh two were, it was two issues of the hulk there was fighting machine man and right. then there was a machine man issue so i like to this day like i really like machine man nobody yeah. else likes machine yeah, man yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and i also like kind of like had an early brush with like jack kirby comics because like i can't i'm not gonna sit here and, and lie to you and say that i loved that comic as a kid uh-huh but I looked through it all the time. Yeah, you're one of the few people that I think, from an early age, responded to Kirby. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for me, it was later. Yeah, I had a I weird phase where um, I have vivid memories of uh, Marvel was putting out Marvel Saga. Uh huh. So, like from those comics, like my parents, like I guess they were just trying to encourage the fact that, like, I always drew and always read. So, like, that was an easy way to keep me like involved in that sort of stuff. Uh huh. Uh, my parents were like probably the most supportive people of all time when yeah, it came to like <clears throat> to my art career because my mom like she's not an artist. My dad's a blue collar guy. Uh-huh. <clears throat> I mean, he's a business owner now, but he started out as a, an electrician. And my mom was like a bookkeeper, but my mom so uh, did was your crafty. Da- she was real did crafty. your dad um, he, he he started like at the bottom. And built up his own business from there? Uh, yeah, basically my dad is an electrical contractor now. They do like uh-huh. industrial electrical contracting work. Um, he owns the company that he used to work for. So like out of high school, he he had like two other jobs before he started working there. But like, I mean, he was like a gas station attendant or uh-huh. something. And then at like 19 or 20, he started digging ditches for this place. And worked his way all the way up to like the front office of it, and ultimately like bought it. <clears throat> Did he work up quick? Like, do you remember? Like, because I've seen your parents' house now; it's a really nice yeah. house. 
Did did he? Do you remember his? his oh no, he didn't work up quick. So when you were you were younger, yeah. When I was, was younger, different. it was but like they're pretty well off now. Yeah, but when we were young, like uh, we lived in, on the west side of Charlotte, and I wouldn't call it a bad neighborhood, but it was definitely not a good neighborhood. It's not what it is yeah, where they exactly. are now. Um, so like I remember, I mean, I have like pretty formative memories of him coming home like covered in dirt, you know, from head to toe, and mm-hmm. uh, like. So, I mean, like in some way, I think that always gave me the confidence to th- my dad in a way, my dad and my mom. I mean, they were very much a unit uh-huh. in, the, in this. Um, they're small business owners. Right, right. And being in, in comics is being a small business owner. So for better or worse, I like early on bought into that like idea that you can pull yourself up by your own All bootstraps. Right. That's Even, awesome. I don't really honestly believe that that that's uh-huh. a, a reality in america i don't think that that's a i think that's a false bill of goods but i bought into it and i've actually seen outliers like i've seen people who've done it right well yeah. this this is interesting because uh i spoke to sanford yesterday and we were both kind of raised the opposite where the idea of going to work for yourself was looked at as a crazy thing to do. Well, it is a crazy thing to do. Yeah, it, it, it is. But it, I was, I was, I was raised to believe it's, uh, it's not an option in a lot of ways. Well, I mean, I don't want to get too, I don't want to get too deep into the socio-political side of this, but like I had every advantage of being a white male. Sure. Sure. Know? But what I'm saying is you, you had like, because of your parents, Right, you had the idea that this this can be this is an option. Yeah, I mean, my mom, like my mom's side of the family, is also like my mom is the daughter of a sharecropper, so like her dad was a small business owner. Gotcha. I mean, there's some crazy story where like she told me I never knew this, but she told me one time that uh, her father started out as a sharecropper had a uh, had a basically like a gentleman's agreement with the guy that owned the land mm-hmm. he worked the land for 15 years or something the guy died before he could pay oh. it off and um the guy's wife was like basically like there's no contract uh-huh and so my grandfather just did it all over again oh my god <laughs> i know I, I just think that's amazing yeah. like so like i was growing up like i split time from like my parents lived here and then maybe other, every other weekend or every third weekend, I would go s- visit my grandparents' farm uh, for two or three days where, like, all there was – they had two channels. I mean, it was like Mama's <laughs> family. <laughs> Mama. <laughs> like, I remember, I've seen so many episodes of Empty Nest <laughs> and Golden Girls. Uh and you know, just like then when I got older, like I would watch like NBA basketball or something on the weekend. A lot of like mutual of Omaha, <laughs> but like the only thing there was to do was either like go play in the woods, right, or draw. Those you are know, good so like I spent a lot of weekends like sort of disconnected from like things that other kids, right, you know, were doing. Uh, because my my mom's mother like had a stroke when she was like fifty. So uh, she was basically incapacitated for my entire life. So my mom like moved to Charlotte, I think, in part to take care of because there was a job here. Right. Oh, oh, that's what brought your mom here. <sighs> yeah. So and then my my parents met like on a blind date and got married pretty quickly. Like I think like two weeks. And they've been together. Ever Are since. you serious? Yeah. They just knew. I guess I don't want to assign. I mean, you haven't spoken. Like, as a, I'm a single guy, so like, I kind of am cynical about like <laughs> about marriage and romance and stuff. And I think part of that though is because, you know, like from my view, they've had kind of a perfect marriage. Yeah, I mean, you do. I noticed earlier when you were talking about them working as a unit, there there was a real, like, you were proud of that. Yeah, I am proud of that. Uh, yeah, I, I don't. That's great. I don't know. Um, I don't know, you know, and I have just as much respect for her as I do for him, uh, uh-huh. just for what she gave, you know, to build our, to build the house and the business and all that kind of stuff. Um, and maybe in some ways, like, she was the one that facilitated me becoming an artist because, like, 
I'm sure my my dad was like he was always bringing home pencils and supplies and but like it was clear, it was clear that he didn't get it right like sure. on some level but, you there, know? but there was an effort there right my mom was kind of like the one that was always like uh you know he can be whatever he wants to be yeah you know and yeah. my dad was kind of like on board with that that's in awesome. theory I mean my parents always were like you can do whatever you want but they were you know when it was looking like comics it was like well have a backup plan. Well, mine were backup plan people too. Mm-hmm. Um, like the whole thing, I think because I showed some facility like towards drawing. Yeah. Um, they kind of assumed like, I mean, you have to remember like where I grew up, there wasn't a lot of people that drew or like were even like outwardly. There were, were not a lot of people who were outwardly interested in art. Right. Um, like my middle school and high school like i can there's like three of us that i can think of yeah yeah um i was the same way so my parents i think because i showed facility in this stuff they kind of assumed like well you know you already are good at this like you don't need to go to school for it Uh uh-huh you know they were more concerned that like as any good parent would be i think that like you know if he's going to be an artist like let him be an artist on his own but he needs to go to school to be you know, to get a job. Right. That ultimately like became like a source of like real conflict for me. I mean, I think that was like, I think I had a nervous breakdown in my twenties, uh, like a midlife crisis. Just in your twenties? Yeah. Over that idea. Like I didn't know like over how to, how to extricate myself from like the path of, you know, like me and Ivan Brandon always joke about like, white men in America, basically, like, if you don't make $100,000 a year, you're kind of a failure. Uh-huh. I don't believe that, but right. I but I think society is set up that way. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really do believe that, like, um, just by virtue of the fact that, like, this is an English-speaking country, it's founded on, that's where all the money came from. Right, like, right. you know. Um, so if you're, it's a pretty, like, as struggles go, it's pretty... It's not a very, it's not like something out of the Bible or whatever, but mm-hmm. the idea to step off that path is kind of difficult. Like, yeah, very difficult. Especially when you like look down one hallway and all these doors are opening. Right. But you want to go down the other hallway. Right. You know, right. and you don't really understand how you're like, well, if, if people who, I, who don't work hard or don't seem to know what they want can just kind of fall into things. Like yeah, how yeah. is that? Why is that so possible? While what I want to do is kind of impossible, or seems yeah, impossible. This this is exactly. You wrestled with that in your twenties. Oh yeah, I didn't. Re- I mean, I I wrestled with that much later when I had a wife and kids, and and it was. Uh, I understand everything you're saying. Yeah, well, I mean, some of it was like I didn't. Some of it was that, uh, like, I got out of college. I went to, like, a regular person's school, so to speak, beer, drink, what, beer drinking yeah, college. That's what I did, too. Um, so, like, when I got out of school, uh, my last semester, like, I was a journalism major, PR journalism major. And my last semester, like, I I basically had started going to school as a freshman. I was an art major. Like, I declared that I was going to be an art major. I went to one art class and, like, decided, like in my like hubris, like I decided like, Oh, this is like, I don't need this. <laughs> like, this is all like, burnt, this is all like you? burnout hip, hippie kids that oh, can't draw. Oh. I mean, like I was an idiot, like in retrospect, but like my ego was like, I had a very outsized ego about it. I was just kind of like, Oh, I can teach myself like whatever I'm going to be taught here. And so I was like, if I'm going to pay this money to be here and spend this time here, like I'm going to study something, study else. something I don't know. And so then my next thing was like, oh, well, I'll be an English a major. <laughs> I know, but then I was like, I'll be an English major. I went to one English class and did the same thing oh where I was God. like, oh, I can read books on my own. Is that is that uh, some is that idea echoed throughout your childhood where you didn't yeah. pursue things? Cause yeah. you're, you're <laughs> I didn't. I always had authority issues, and I still do. Why do you have that? I, I think it's from coming from uh, watching people – like you said, my parents like sort of made their own way. Oh, uh, okay. okay. So I think subconsciously you're always like, you know, people tell you to, even them, like people will tell you like, this is what you're supposed to do. And you, you have 
a prime example of how people kind of pave their own path, you know, their own path. Right. Well, I mean, I've noticed just in my daughter alone, it's, she has that, it's, it's a completely innocent thing in her where you can tell her to do something, but if in her mind she's figured out what she feels is a better way to do it, she'll just do that. It's like, I was always that dude. Yeah. It's, I I feel (sighs) it's like our, there, there's a, it's on one of the Wu Tang records where Riz is talking about old dirty, and he's like, "You can't return him from an idea." Right. And I was—that's how my my daughter my, is. My mom always said, "My mom always said that I should sit on top of the library and tell people stuff so they don't have to go in." <laughs> <laughs> I just always thought that was hilarious. Was she was she like being a, a doting mother? Or was there an element no, no, of sarcasm she was to it? Saying like you're a fucking asshole. <laughs> <laughs> she, like every time that I would try to correct. Now, granted. A lot of times they have the same attitudes about things that I do. Right. Except the one thing that we share in common is, is at our root, we're stubborn, you know, but they're also like, they're old school, sort of like a little more like my parents are kind of, I always describe them as being socially liberal, like one-on-one they're liberal. Right. But they're, they vote Republican and they, you know, they think conservatively. uh, What do they call that? Uh, they're like, I don't know. They're kind of like old world, uh, like what you would call maybe uh, World War II Democrats. Right. But they vote they vote Republican. You know? Right, right. And I just, I'm gotten, just trying to remember the And I'm a pretty liberal dude. Like I grew up in a, <clears throat> I think going to a high school where like I played sports and, and was a romantic kind of dude anyway. I was into like mm-hmm. uh, literature and art or whatever. Like those are things I, I was drawn to. Right. Um, that by his nature is fairly open-minded generally and then the fact that i also had like an experience like playing sports growing up where Uh where i was a minority right 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 you know it was like one of the few times in your life where you're actually treated like a minority right um like even though it's a false presentation of that because like ultimately like the system that's in place is you're still in power right but like on that field or on that court (laughs) you know like it's a little more even Right, or it's a little more uh, of a meritocracy. Uh, so, like I, you know, and I, I got to know a lot of people who were like a different walks of life or different kinds of different, just from different cultural backgrounds through that experience. And so, like that, really, like I could once that happened, like I could never like step back from it. Like I was never able to like see things the same way as right. I, f- I, you and I, I think we connected. I mean, we've known each other for a long time now. Yeah. And I, I think earlier on you were talking about going to a, a regular like keg college, uh-huh. and and that's what I did too. And I think we connected. I think you and I are similar and connected on on having similar pasts. Yeah. Where like my whole life was kind of spent like being in different types of groups of people and blending in. Yeah, my problem was I knew who I was inside, but I didn't know who I was outside. Yeah, I, I, like, I could I say had, that about I had me no too. way of. Uh, like I didn't know how to assimilate with the, the the people that were sort of in power culturally wherever I was, like whoever was popular or whoever yeah. was throwing the party or whatever. Like I always, I always felt like I was like, I felt like my internal life was more interesting. Uh huh. But like in order to survive, like I tried to acclimate and that's ultimately like what drove me a little crazy is like I didn't, <clears throat> I never felt comfortable in high school. Like I played football. Oh, really? Yeah, I felt I played football. I, I, you know, I knew everybody. Uh huh. But inside, like I was just a mess. Like always. How were you a mess? Oh, I don't know. Like my senior year, I wanted out of there so bad. Like I just wanted to start over. Why? The girls always twisted me up. Like, oh, you know. Oh, uh, just just teenage, just teenage stuff. Yeah, yeah, but it yeah. twisted me up in a way that was like, like I couldn't deal with it. Gotcha. Um. And then college was a little bit better. Like it was college. What happened was I started drinking. You didn't drink in high school? No. Oh, wow. So in college I started drinking and I thought like, oh shit. Like when I, when I drink, like I'm, I'm cool to be around. Like I, like I have no problem talking to people. Like I can kind of like hold court. Uh Like, uh, all my, all my inhibitions would slide away, obviously. That sounds Um, like, uh. 
like the road to disaster. It was the road to disaster because like when you're in a situation in college, there's really nothing at risk. Right. I mean, you're kind of like a training wheels on steel. Sure. But I just, if like your first relationship with alcohol is, oh, this helps me r- relate to people or, or, oh, yeah. or, or, or socialize better. And of course there's an element of that to everyone. Oh, I'll but- never forget that like, there was like the hottest girl that I'd met yet at school. Like the, and I didn't drink for like the first semester. And the first night I got drunk, she made a pass at me. And I just remember thinking, like, this is amazing. Like, this is, <laughs> this is like, all I have to do. Like, after, like, all this, like, torture, mm-hmm. you know, all this, like, internal conflict over, like, oh, God, I'm going to strike out. And then I'm going to, you know, she's going to see her every all day. Sudden, yeah. And all of a sudden, like, you know, one night where I have a couple drinks uh, and, like, you're in a situation where, like, this is, like, a thing that you've been pining over for months, you know. Right. It was just the road to ruin. It was, like, uh, like, I... Like I said, like in a college environment, like there's it's training wheels. Like you don't know, um, there's really nothing at, at risk, right? So when you get out of that situation and you enter the real world, but you still have those habits, mm-hmm. like it becomes like a crutch, like right? Right. That's thing, what I'm saying. Especially when you get some money in your pocket. Sure. So, so did alcohol become a problem in your life at any point? Yeah. It didn't become a, like, I wasn't an alcoholic, but I, right. but only by, like, the strict definition of, like, what an alcoholic Was did. that, but that, was that when we knew each other or before we met? It would flare its head up. Uh-huh. Like, it would, like, I would get it under control, and then it, then it would, you know, then whenever, it would be different things, but, like, it started out as alcohol. Like, what happened was I graduated college, and I thought, um... I, I had no plan. Like I thought, like oh, I thought, like oh, you can be a newspaper cartoonist, right? Because <laughs> I started doing well, your newspaper roots, strips, right? Right. Yeah. Your roots come from there. Yeah, I started doing newspaper strips in college. Um, and that was four sheets left. Yeah, and then like after that was over, I had no plan. Like I remember, I sent like packages to. I mean, I had been submitting. Like basically, what happened was I fell out of love with with comic books. Uh huh. But I wasn't out of love with cartooning. Right. And part of that was because, like, I'd been going to Heroes Con for years. Mm-hmm. And basically, my MO at Heroes Con was that I would show up once a year with my, like, I would work feverishly over, like, pages. I mean, like, my whole thing was, like, I kind of had OCD over my storytelling. Like, I would just do pages over and over and over and over and over again. Like, I could mm-hmm. show you, like, the same Spider Man uh, five page sample that I redrew 10 times. Uh-huh. Um and I would do that and I would go to Heroes Con and I would get critiques. Like I would go around and I would get critiques from every single uh person there. Right. Like it didn't matter if I liked your work or I didn't like your work. And what I started to notice was that like after a couple years, like it, people did really didn't have anything to say. You know? And rather than like taking that as like this is a vote of confidence. I started to think like these people don't have anything to to show me anymore, and then mm-hmm. you would hear like guys socially like complain about their careers and. Oh right, right, right. This was like at a downswing point of the industry right. too. Like, this there's a, a lot of people who are like you're coming out of the back end of the image collapse or the right. so this not the image collapse. It's early the '90s DC image, right? Whatever. When everybody was doing foil covers and all right. that kind and of then stuff, it just bottomed out. Yeah. So a lot of guys were reasonably stressed out. Like they didn't understand like where comics were going right but in retrospect like i didn't know that like i was a kid like superman 75 or whatever like to me like it was like this is great like there's right. more comics right right you right. know um but so like i was the, it planted the idea in my head that like oh well like if you really want to make a living this is also i'm holding two ideas in my head at the same time where like one is like i still want to be a cartoonist but i'm starting to see that like that path towards like mainstream cartooning is maybe not the greatest you mean decision. comic books? yeah it's yeah. maybe not the greatest decision uh and i'm also like dealing with the idea that my parents like want me to have a good job right yeah yeah salary and benefits uh, right so 
I get the like harebrained idea that like, oh, I like doing this comic strip thing. I've always liked this. Anybody can read comic strips. Like my grandpa used to read comic strips like right. at the table. And I'm thinking like, oh, I'll try and, you know, if I could get 50 newspapers to like pick me up <laughs> and I make a dollar off everything, you know, I make 30 grand a year or whatever. Like right. that's not that bad. No. Um, <laughs> but what I didn't realize is like even as a journalism major, I'd been in journalism and they were basically lying to us, basically telling us, like, you know, like, journalism is is healthy. <laughs> but this is, like, 1999, you know? Like, right. this is right when newspapers are starting to, like, drop like flies. Right. And a lot of these places, the first thing they're doing is cutting comic strips. So, like, I get out of school and I try to, like, send around my packets. And I get some responses from it. But, like, in retrospect, like, it wasn't great. Like, it wasn't there. Um and then I, I go home. I work for my dad for like eight months. I drive a truck. Like I, I'm getting up every morning. I'm like taking pipe to construction sites, and and it was kind of rewarding. Uh-huh. Like the demands of it were rewarding, but uh, but I just felt like I was wasting my life. Were you drawing at all during this? Oh yeah, time? I was drawing nonstop. At night. Like I would be up till four in the morning, and then uh-huh. I would get up at seven and go to work what were you drawing were you still pr- doing like, four seats left like i was oh, okay. doing comic strips and then i had like a disney like somehow i got like a disney package submission uh-huh like to go to like be a imagineer yeah something like that yeah like an intern at that uh-huh. and like i submitted and they called me back and then like i remember reading the contract that was like they were gonna own everything yeah yeah and at like 21 i'm like Oh, you know, I'm not going to let them own my genius ideas. <laughs> right, right. This is gold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, then I get a job just randomly. Uh, I get a chance to go inter- go interview for an advertising agency in uh, in, in Atlanta. Oh, in Atlanta. Oh, that's right. okay. Okay. So I go to the interview and I don't have an art degree. I don't know how to use half the programs or whatever. But I walk in with my comic strips. I remember, like, I put the uh, open big ass portfolio like on the <laughs> desk. I knock water over. I spill water all over the guy's lap. It was crazy. It was like <laughs> it was like Seinfeld or something. <laughs> and the guy, uh, the guy actually hired me though. He was like, you know, I guess he was like, the guy's got more talent than than like most of the people we bring in here to just do remedial kind of like Photoshop cleanup jobs or whatever, like intern him for six months and see how it goes. And after six months they hire me, but like it was such a crappy ad agency in terms of like the stuff we were working on. Well, it's an ad agency. (laughs) Right. I mean, it was not, but like, I think sadly, I think like had we had big clients, yeah, yeah, I I might've been all right with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think like at that point in my life, like the saddest admission is that like if we were doing beer commercials, like I would have probably been like, this is great. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> we were just doing Budweiser bikini shoots or something. I probably would have been all right with it at that point in my life. Yeah, of course. But because we were doing just shitty like mailers, you know, like I hated it. Like I remember like I spent one time I was like, I got word that I was like kind of on the cutting block. At the agency? Yeah. And so, like, I was like, well, I gotta, I can't lose this job. So I went in on the next job, like, I just, like, worked my ass off. And I worked my ass off for, like, two weeks. I ate all the shit that, like, would come downhill. Like, Uh there was a lot of, like, people going, like, move this letter over a quarter inch. Right. That kind of thing. And it used to drive me crazy. But for that two weeks, I was like, all right, I'll put up with it. Yeah. And I came home one day to my apartment complex, and the flyer that I had worked for two weeks on, there were like a thousand of them in the trash can. Ooh. And so it was like, not only do people like not give a shit. Yeah. You know, they didn't even look at it. Like it was just it's junk just, in their just mailbox. And I think that was the beginning of the end. Like I just started like drinking all the time. In Atlanta? <clears throat> yeah. I started drinking my paycheck away. I mean, there were some crazy, crazy oh. times when I lived in Atlanta. Uh-huh. And eventually, like I lost that job. Um, which was like in retrospect, like really, like the guy told me when he fired me, he was like, "You don't belong here. Like you don't, you shouldn't be here. Like you need to go do what you want to do." Um, I had an interview, that, like when I was out of college and trying to get my comics career going, and my parents think they're helping by trying to help me get graphic design jobs and stuff that I I had no interest in. There was a 
like in my my hometown, which is a smaller town, Columbia, there was the big ad agency there. It wasn't a big ad agency, but for Columbia it was. Uh, I guess they knew the guy who ran it, and they, they set up an appointment for me to meet with him. And uh, I, I I didn't want it, but I also knew that it would pay well and whatever. Yeah, you knew it was an opportunity. Right. So I went in and, and sat down and talked to him, but that was the same exact thing he said looking through my book. He's like, you, just, you don't belong here. You know, yeah. I was like, I don't want to give you a low-level job. This is not what you want to do. This dude, it was hard to swallow from him on some level because like he... <laughs> he played fantasy survivor, which is, fuck? you remember this TV show from survivor? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, like fantasy football, you pick like a player. Oh, oh, oh okay. So okay. he was like picking like people on the TV show and he would like, you know, <laughs> like for no reason. Like, and so when I walked in for, to, to fire me, the dude straight up turns to me and looks me in the eye and says, you're off the Island. Oh my God. And I was like, I've never wanted to hit somebody's, so hard you know like i'm standing there like turning red like about to like explode and about halfway through you know it took me about 30 seconds before i realized like this dude just did me a favor and like as soon as like i that like clicked like everything kind of dissipated um and i kind of calmly like packed up my stuff and left but you know i had no plan after that i didn't know what i was going to do um and I just ended up drinking more and more until, like, I I ended up going back to. Uh, my mom hates when I tell this story. Why? Well, I don't you. know. I think she thinks it's embarrassing. But I'm oh. like, you know, I think like if there's something valid about all this, that like it's uh, like you can kind of turn it around if you uh-huh. really want to. She hates when you tell how like the just drinking away the pain. Uh-huh. I think she she always well, uses it like she's like she used to tell me like. Uh, <laughs> She used to say, like, I keep thinking I'm going to turn on the TV show Cops and see you, <laughs> <laughs> like, covering your so head. So when this was going on, were they, was she worried about you? Oh, and, they were, on you I like, think they were terrified. Oh, my God. Um, but so I went back. It was Super Bowl Sunday, like, 12 years ago. It was the Rams-Patriots Super Bowl. And I remember, like, I went back to my college hometown, or my college town. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember I told the guy, we went up, we got up at, like, Nine in the morning to go get beer. We were going to drink all day. And I remember telling the dudes, like, I'm never, like, I had been drinking and driving a little bit. Right. You know, because that's what you, I mean, that's what people in that culture do, unfortunately. Yeah, that's true. And I remember telling people, like, I'm never doing that again. Like, I remember it coming out of my mouth. Like, it almost, like, fell like lead. Uh Uh-huh. You know, like, when I said it. Uh, You know, we drank all day. Like, all day long. And, like, then it, like three in the morning somebody had the bright idea of like let's go get something to eat this is in atlanta no this is in greenville north carolina oh okay okay okay. and i um i went out to my car started my car up and the guy that was gonna go with me like was passed out like on the couch inside Uh uh-huh and i was just like fuck him i'm going to get something to eat and i got about three blocks from the house and realized like i can't drive this car yeah and i turned around in the middle of the road and swerved like crazy and got pulled over Oh. Um, blew a point two seven. Ooh, that's like three times the legal limit. Yeah, that's, well, the legal limit's point one. Point oh eight. Point oh eight. Okay. Yeah, in North Carolina, it's point oh eight. Um. So this was your DUI you got. Yeah. I mean, oh, I thought sto- that it was in Florida for some reason. No, nah, the story is a this lot. Is, more. You went to Florida after this. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. I'm sorry. The story's probably a lot. That's the Cliff Notes version. Of right. It. Right. Um. But so I had to move home. Like, I didn't have a job. Right. I didn't have uh, any prospects. I had a, I couldn't drive for a year. And the only thing that, like, I had to make any money was uh, my old ad agency threw me an illustration job. Uh huh. And so, like, I was, you know, part time working for my dad some and doing that and basically living out of my parents' house. Um, at 25, like in a city where everybody that's 25 is a banker or uh, has kind of a, it seemed like everybody in my social circle basically had a pretty steady job. Right. So I ate a lot of shit, you know, what for was that the, whole time. What happened as a result of the DUI? Uh, you know, I had to sit, I, I had to sit out for a year. Like I couldn't drive anywhere for right. a year. I knew you I had to take time. all these like alcohol co- counseling co- classes. Right. Um, 
then I had to, when I got my license back, I had one of those uh, devices where you have to blow in the, uh-huh, uh-huh. In the device to start your car. I went out on, on a date one time with that in my car. Did you really? Yeah, it was, That's not a red flag. <laughs> but, yeah. um, so it was, you know, basically in my mid-20s, my 20s, it was like a three-year process. It was like a, you know, from start to finish. And at the point where most people are, um, I guess, either starting their careers or moving towards like being full-blown adults, uh-huh. uh, like I was kind of, trapped in purgatory and it was the best thing that ever happened to me right i remember i I knew you during this time because like i had i was like really kind of i was just really all over the place in terms of like what i want like my my goal my ambitions exceeded my grasp Mm -hmm. like in a way that was just you know there was no way i was ever going to have what i wanted and having to have three years of like the world telling me like you either you have to stop uh-huh. like that was really where I think it all started to come together and that's when you decided to just focus on comics well I kind of flared up like I you know like I I went through like a little thing where instead of drinking I was like into gambling you did uh-huh and uh I must have known you during uh, this yeah time. it was just like like we would go to Vegas and do that kind of thing and then then I moved to to get out of Charlotte, I went to grad school for a year in right. Florida. Okay, so that was just when I met you. And that was terrible. Like, I mean, it was, the people were great, but the place was terrible. Like, after, like, two months, I was like, I can't do this whole, like, partying, like, undergrad right, thing right. anymore. Um, so, like, I spent the second half of that semester there, like, trying to, um, trying to find, like, trying to put together a comics career. And the only thing that I kind of had working in my favor was is that like the semester before I went to Florida, uh-huh. I had been seeing a girl here in Charlotte when I was living with my parents. So I saw, I saw this girl for about four months. Right. And she was like when we started seeing each other, she was a waitress and then she had become a real estate agent. And so like she was like in the process of like she was like everything that's in my life that's not moving forward has got to go. Right. And at this point, like, I'm already sort of insecure about, like, where I am. Uh-huh. Uh, and she was like, well, are you going to do this comics thing or not? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And so San Diego Comic-Con was coming up. Right. And I had enough money to buy a plane ticket. But I didn't know anybody that was going. And I didn't, like, have enough money for a hotel room. <laughs> but I was just so, like, like I got to start. I got to do something. I got to make this happen. Right. So I, I fly out and the first night I slept in that little park, like across from the show. Did I, did I not, did we, I mean, I think we knew each other, but we didn't know you like that well. And I don't even think you were there that year. Okay. So like I flew out there, um, and I ate Ralph's corn dogs all weekend. <laughs> so like now every year that I it, when I do go back, I always make sure I eat a Ralph's corn dog. <laughs> but I lived off Ralph's corn dogs. They have forty bucks, so I lived off Ralph's corn dogs, and uh, I think I bought like one case of beer that week. <laughs> and I um, I slept in that park one night. I, one night I slept in the uh, hotel lot. One of yeah, those hotel lobbies. You like you remember, San Diego was like different. Yeah, it was then. very small. Um, so you could kind of get away with that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and by the end of the weekend though, I kind of had no leads. Like I was kind of, I was kind of fucked. Like, and I remember I was standing at the image booth. Like I had talked to Stevenson a little bit about like maybe like doing my comic strip there or something. Cause I knew I'd known Kirkman and Tony and all those people for a long time. Right. And they were just started like, they had just sort of like kicked off like doing image stuff. Um, so I'm standing at the image booth and like Mark, Matt Groening walks by. Yeah. Okay. I remember uh, this. And Matt Groening walks by and I don't know if it was desperation or what the hell it was, but I like chased him down and I had like a collection of my comic strip stuff and it had like one color sample on the back and I handed him the book and I was like, you know, Mr. Groening, like I'm a big fan of the Simpsons. I'm a big fan of life in hell. Uh-huh. Um, this is just, it's just a comic strip I did and I just want to give it to you out of, just you know, to show you like what you, that you've inspired me. Okay. And he turns around like he's got he, 
he was on the way to the bathroom. Yeah. So he turns around and stops and talks to me for 20 minutes. Like he's doing the pee-pee dance. <laughs> but like he's all like thrilled like that somebody would like come up to him. and Yeah, he's always a nice guy. And uh, he says like, you know, go over to Bongo and tell him I sent you. And give him this, give him one of these. And I'm thinking like, I was just like him being nice. Right. I went over and did that and they gave me a job. Like they gave me my first coloring job. Right. You got a job. So I got my first Bongo. job in comics from Matt Groening. Right. Which yeah. is pretty amazing. That's like, awesome. In retrospect, like he kind of saved my comics career. Sure. Um, and I always forget to tell that story. Like I was on that breaking in Marvel panel a couple weeks ago. Oh yeah. yeah and I forgot to, I didn't tell that story story. And afterwards I was at lunch and I told Brevoort that story and he was like, why didn't you tell that in the story? Yeah, I mean, in the one. panel. Who was on the panel with you this, this year? Uh, Jason and Declan and Jordy and. Oh, Declan uh, was at the show. Yeah. Oh, cool. But so like in Florida, like I had that, like I knew that, that I, you know, at least had had some, chink in the armor and i'd also like if i'm being fair if i'm being honest there had been flirtations with marvel like i would like i had got back into like doing pages like i submitted a uh an invaders pitch to right Epic i remember that this. went pretty well like right it made it pretty far up the chain i remember i knew you during that time and so like i was like on the verge of kind of like you know a lot of that stuff then was like looking back on it was self like i got in my own way all the time like I had a lot of opportunities. To was do it self sabotage? I think so. Was it was, was it like your authority <laughs> issue stuff? Yeah, flaring probably. Up? I mean, a lot of it was also like I just it had to mean more to me. That it, like some of it was like I knew how hard my parents had worked in their life to get uh-huh. where they were, and I knew what they had afforded me through their hard work. And I would look around me, and I saw like people that. Um, my peers and stuff who didn't have that advantage at that point yeah, or didn't have that support system. Like they didn't have somebody who was, uh, so my reaction to that was that like my stuff has to ultra matter now. Like it has to like, like I can't just be at that time. I thought like I just, I can't just be another like artist. Like right, I have to be, I have to make this count because I have an opportunity to make it count. Uh-huh. You know, like, and I still think I hold a lot of that to this day. Um, I've just become a lot more at ease with the fact of like, you know, what I do for a living or what I do. Is that is that something that's gotten in your way of, of oh, yeah. uh, getting things done on time that you're, you're just so consumed with trying to make it count? Yeah, I, mean, I think like only recently in the last couple of years, I... I think I've gotten to the point where I feel comfortable enough that like I've validated myself. I think like being an artist is largely about, <clears throat> I think the root of a root of a lot of, it's not just artists. I think people in general want to be validated. Mm-hmm. I think it's extra hard when you're an artist because the world doesn't know how to quantify what you do. Sure. Um, it's such an abstract concept uh, and it's almost in its way, uh, the antithesis of like the way capitalism is set up to work. Uh, I think people don't understand how to quantify or qualify what we do. And so as a result, like when you do a thing that doesn't have a direct impact on somebody, because largely you're dealing with things that are nebulous, like people's emotions or people's feelings. Uh, they're responding to like, even when people respond to artwork, they're responding to um, <clears throat> impressions. Like you can, you can uh, articulate what you like in art, but it's always different based on it's ultimately so subjective. Yeah. That like, uh, there's almost no median for it. And like in other jobs, there's always like an, or other jobs or other ways of life. There's always ways to quantify. Yeah. There's always a debt, a bottom line. Right. Right. You know, like, growing up as a guy that played sports, like the thing in sports that you would always say is like, it's not how you, it's not whether you win or lose, but how you play the game. They always right. say that, but that's not it, it how people winning. act. Right, right. Like how you, winning is what people. But even in sports, there's, you have stats and there's no arguing with right, the exactly. stats. It's a way to quantify right. how, how you perform. So when you're an artist and you're younger, like 
like people are culturally not like like art is not ingrained in people. Art is a escape in America. Okay. You know, in other cultures, I you know I can't like speak too with too much authority on this, but in other cultures, it seems like. Like I was really struck like when I, I've only been to Europe a couple of times and that's recently and I was really struck by the idea that like if you had – if I grew up in like Italy, for example, uh, and I'm struggling with like let's say I'm having a shitty like relationship. Yeah. Like I could walk in – there's art museums on every corner. There's there's art on every – like amazing art on right, every corner. Right. It seems culturally art is a celebration of life right. versus and it, here it's an and escape. And there's, there's a guy that did a painting that basically, you know – encompasses like every thought that you might have about the subject like you right. can whereas like in america like uh, that exists but it exists as escape you know like it's not culture it's not uh atmosphere it's not in the atmosphere it's not pervasive mm-hmm. it's the thing that like people do when they get off work they do right. it at their own time right 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 um it's they get out of their their life to d- right to be a part of it so people don't have the uh acumen for like basically breaking down art in the same way. Okay. Because they don't, we don't actively engage with it. Right. So as an artist, like because like other people around you don't actively engage with what you do, they have a harder time uh, assigning worth to it. Either, they either think it's like some crazy magic trick. Right. It's like, oh my God, like that guy was born with that ability. Like he can right. yeah, just exactly. conjure that up. What a gift. Right. Yeah. Or they just like think like you're wasting your time. Like, yeah. oh God, like, you know, like there's no way to put, like you said, like a number on it. Right. So what you're looking for, I think, as a person is most people are looking for like some sort of validation to their effort. You know, like we all want to like the people around us to know like what we're doing matters for something. Uh, and when you're an artist and you have like a you have a skill like that, you have like a, a thing that you feel like is worthy of putting out in the world. Um, <clears throat> what ultimately like you're looking for is for people to tell you that that's worthy. Um and if you grow up in a culture that doesn't know how to tell you that, you're always going to sort of have a root problem with it, I think. Sure. So, like, a lot of us look for validation in, like, um, in either, you know, the, the, the opinion of our peers yeah, yeah, yeah. or how much money we make. Sure. Um, and this is a, a conversation you and I have had in a different way over and over yeah, as long yeah. as we've known each other. Where you've you've often come to me and be like, you gotta stop worrying about that or Well, I think it's because like I because I had like all these you know, the the, the DUI period and right. then the time I spent in New York, which were basically kinda like little exiles. Uh-huh. Like I realized like in those periods, like the New York period was a whole thing, like after like basically this Cliff Notes is like coming out of the DUI thing, like I thought like I can make this happen now. Mm-hmm. Did expatriate fell apart. You know, basically because I took on too much. Right. I mean, there was a lot of things that made that happen, but basically I took on too much. I was too egotistical about, like, my approach to it. I thought, like, this is the thing that's going to blow the doors off, people's doors off. Right. Every At every turn I was trying to sure to show off or, or whatever. Are you worried about taking on that, that problem of taking on too much repeating again? No, because I think, like, that was – they were about – they're about different things now. Okay. So what I'm getting at is that, you know, after that I scaled back. I realized I was wrong. Like I realized I needed to kind of like reapproach what I was doing. And the thing that I think I gained out of both of those periods was uh, that I learned to sit alone in a room by myself. Uh huh. Like to remove myself from like what other people expected. Um, are you are you speaking metaphorically sitting in a room by yourself or are you talking about sitting and working by yourself and just getting in I think that if you the hard thing about being an artist and especially like for me like it was accentuated just because of context the context being that I'm a single guy uh, and I decided to like uproot my life and like move to like part of New York where I could barely afford to get by but like I was literally sitting alone in a room with no, like, I didn't know a whole lot of people. Okay. Like, there was nobody coming through the door to, like, kind of, like, give me a massage or, or massage my ego or my shoulders, uh, okay. so to speak. Okay. 
Um, so everything sort of had to, like, I basically had time to put everything in front of me and tear it apart and think, like, well, why are you doing this? Like, why are you, is this about your ego? Is this about your work? Like, what are you trying, is this, so all these things that we're talking about today, like, I was, I put them under the microscope. And like one of the conclusions that I've come to is that, like, <clears throat> the only success that you're ever going to have, I think, is is if you allow it to be about what you want, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah, I can see that. Um, the problem is, is that we all, is that we're not, we, we want to be, as artists, we want to be, fully realized uh, entities. Like we want to be like this little thing that like operates under its own mass, but we are connected to other people. And I think those are two ideas that you can hold in your head at the same time. Because I'm kind of, I sound like Russ Cole right now, (laughs) (laughs) but I do think that like there's, that there's, that who you are matters, but it doesn't matter more than the people around you. Uh, sure. And that's a very difficult line for us to walk as as artists, you know? And what I realized and where I started to, like, sort of put it all together was when I realized that, like, um, I mean, I'm speaking as if I've put it together, but I started to put it together more. Sure. And I realized that, like... Uh, I just want, like, I got into this thing for people to, to, to engage people. Like, I got into this thing to be a storyteller and to be connected right. to the, I wanted, like, I got into this thing because I found a box of comics and I enjoyed this, like, silly book this person made. Okay. And if I sit in a room and I uh, allow myself to over and over again, like, not make work, like, I'm never going to be fulfilled uh, because I'm not going to be connecting to people. Right. right this, I really lost the thread. There. No, 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 no. What's <sighs> happening is I've got a lot of questions reeling through my head that I really want to get into. Okay. Um, what I would like to do, if you're up for it, is take a break, end this as part one. Yeah, that's fine. And then record part two on the tail of it. Yeah, I just hope I'm not a. <laughs> I hope I'm making any sense at all. At no, no, point. you are. But I think with all the questions I've got, that we're going to go into some really deep ground that I think will be okay, a cool. good conversation. All right, all right. Well, uh, well, we'll be back with part two. That's that. Another one in the bank. I hope you're enjoying these two parters. I just I find that some conversations, there's just we hit on so many interesting notes that I just want to keep going, and and I can usually tell with the interviewee that they still want to talk, and I've got content to fill. So let's keep this train moving. Uh, thank you for listening. And again, please help spread the word. Twitter, wherever you can. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I don't give a fuck. If you like this, let someone else know. The more, the merrier, I say. Um, And please, please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave feedback. That's important. I don't know why. I don't know much about this podcasting world. I see the comic book podcasting world growing a little bit each month, and that's nice to see. Um, so, uh, yeah, just just do what you can to help spread the word. It's fucking free. Try, I'm trying to ask for some help here, Henry. You want to help me out? I do a lot of fucking favorites for you. I hope you saw good fellas. If not, then go fuck yourself. You ever see that stuff to be when it get cold, that ice that you can't see? That shit happens sometimes.
Shoulders of those writing dreams Feeling for the taste of mythol Miss class stayed in the hall Looking for a squeeze play Better yet a holiday Stayed away from the pyramid Boy game Broke it down to a neighborhood slang Cash before fame Stepped in, the nigga to be IG the secret weapon. Boy, slicker than black ice. Throw me these flow that rice at wedding, so quick flex. We speaking about something that's refreshing to the earlobes. Pay for the room and still be in pimp mode like iceberg. Christ, birds and Buicks. Some niggas ain't on their job, so them suckers seem to lose it. Abuse their privileges and not the whole villages. Been shot to pieces. Cause niggas are biting that same stupid shit. I mean that features. Boy, don't beat me if you ain't got no work. I'm strictly by these verses like the ones you hear at church, boy. Search, boy. Talking about your dope is wrong like lurch, boy. Every time I heard you rhyming like a fucking jerk, boy. Simp, yeah. Friends, Romans, countrymen. Lend me your eardrums It was a beautiful day off in the neighborhood Yellows and greens and blues and browns and grays And hues that ooze beneath dilapidated wood Ain't a thing could explain But pertains to cocaine and sustaining rain See summer rolls around, niggas all about change Then they said it moved them keys like Bob James Cause old man winners arrived The temperature dies, November just died December's alive, thus it ain't no typical ride This individual's way to bring home The bacon when bacon was all wrong Making it our own, taking me all wrong We've all indulged in the bulge of those No, 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 you ain't so low There's even lower levels you can go Take sun people, put them in the land of snow Touch what I never touched before, What I never seen before Woke up and seen the sun Sky high, sky high 